Okay, well, this morning, uh, I want to talk about something. They're nestled high in the Andes Mountains at about 12,000 feet above sea level lies this statue called Christ of the Andes. So you, you may be familiar, there's another famous Christ statue in South America in Rio de Janeiro, uh, but this is another famous one called Christ of the Andes, and it, it's got a pretty unique story about it. Um, it was created in the early 1900s in an effort to promote peace between Argenti Argentina and Chile. And the idea behind the statue was that so much conflict had existed between the two countries for so long that they both said that they wanted to pursue peace to end conflict. So they, they had this statue built, and the idea behind it is, was that as long as Christ is standing between the two nations, that conflict, that peace would reign. And interestingly enough, it has. But there's a really kind of almost humorous story behind this that's a little bit ironic too. When the statue was put up in the early 1900s, way, I don't know how, by the way, I have no idea how they got this up there. I mean, this thing is huge. I, I, I should have put in like a person so that you could see the scale. But this is a very big statue. But interestingly enough, when they put this up, it wasn't less than like a month afterwards that tensions began to rise again between the two countries, but for a unique reason. The way the statue is placed is that Christ faces um, Argentina while his back is facing Chile, okay? And interestingly enough, right after this was put up, uh, the people from Chile became very upset because they felt they had been slighted as to why, why is it that the Argentina people get to look directly at Jesus while we have to look from behind. And it, it became to such a, tempers really began to build, and they were really at their highest, but it was thanks to a newspaper man from Chile who ultimately saved the day in an editorial that he wrote that not only satisfied the people but made them laugh when he wrote, well, I guess the people of Argentina need more watching over than the people of Chile. <laughs> I, there's a few things in life that we know are for certain. We always know that phrase, death and taxes, but you know what's another one? It's conflict. Conflict is inevitable in our life. Conflict is in every single relationship that you have. Now, that may vary in certain degrees to that, but it doesn't matter if it's your spouse, your child, your coworker, your best friend. There will always be some conflict that enters into it. Um, some people love conflict. Some people hate conflict. There's people in this room, I guarantee you, I've said the word conflict so many times, they're like, you know what, I think I need to go to the bathroom. I think I'm going to take about 30 minutes because I, I don't even want to talk about conflict, that we hate it so much. But, but conflict is a part of our lives. And, and what we see, even when we read this book, is that conflict is all throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we see conflict enter. In fact, at the, almost at the very beginning of Genesis, conflict enters in. Um, God creates the world, but the great thing is that when it's created, uh, it, the world is perfect. 
And, and because the world is perfect, there is conflict doesn't even exist, between, at least between God and man and, and Adam and Eve. There is no conflict. But we see a very unique thing happen, that as soon as sin enters the world, guess what else enters? Conflict. Conflict enters as a result of it. The very first detailed account of conflict between two people, by the way, if you remember back in the story of Genesis, was not a very good conflict. Remember, Cain and Abel, brothers. Right? They're, like the, they're, they're literally like the first group of people in the entire existence. And it doesn't take long for them as brothers to enter to conflict. And most of you remember the story that the, that conflict ultimately led to the death of one of them. But conflict is inevitable uh, it's part of our culture, and yet what I want to talk about today is, and we're going to see, we're going to see a story of conflict enter in. And, and what I hope to see is that there is a biblical perspective of conflict, there is a view that we can take that God ultimately lays out, and then how that contrasts to the cultural view. You see, I think in culture, we look at conflict as, a, as an opportunity uh, to see who comes out on top, where conflict is all about can I become justified? Can I look the best in this? And yet, I think that's contrast to how what God calls us to do in conflict. It's not a means to come out on top and berate others. As we're going to see, conflict is an opportunity for people to grow, and especially grow in their faith. So we're going to be in the book of Acts. If you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand. One of our host team will be glad to get you one. But we're going to be in the book of Acts. And we're going to be in chapter 15. We'll be there here in just a minute, but let's recap just a moment. Acts is a very fast, very busy book. Right? It's, a, it's a historical kind of narrative style book where the author Luke has taken us through a, a, a long period of time, but he's condensing it down, and, and there's just a lot that happens. Because if you remember back, or if you're not familiar with the book, Acts begins with Jesus um, after his death and resurrection, and he's commissioning the disciples to go out. He, he's further illustrating this command of, I want you to go out into the world. I want you to continue spreading the good news of who I am, not just here in Jerusalem, but beyond and into the rest of the world. So we, we, we see Jesus at the beginning. Uh, the, we see the church created, uh, this, this very unique thing called the church that we today at this very moment are still experiencing. We see the church com, uh, built up. We see persecution. We t we've talked a lot through this series about the people that have died for the faith. We talked about a particular man who carried out those executions, a, a, a man who was prominent, a man named Saul, who ultimately met Jesus and in, turned his entire life around to instead dedicate his entire rest of his life proclaiming the gospel. We've seen a lot happen. Um, in the past few weeks, and during this series in Acts, we've been through what's called Sent, where if you look in the book of Acts, it's kind of really broken up into three different parts. And this last part, it's called Sent, because as the church has been being built up, as leaders have been developed, we, we saw a few weeks ago that the church in Antioch, which really started to become the central place of Christianity, commissions this first team of missionaries— Paul and Barnabas, they, sent, they gather these two guys together and they say, 
We're sending you out. We want you to go out into the world. And so we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, the first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas are sent out to what is uh, really modern-day Cyprus and Turkey and, and the many churches and, and people that they met with. So that's where we're going we're gonna to be picking up there a little bit today. We're, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. So Paul and Barnabas have, have completed their missionary journey. There's been some issues in Jerusalem that we talked a little bit about last week. I'm not going to get into that today. Um, but we're, we're rejoining the story of Paul and Barnabas. So uh, Acts 15, look at verse 36 with me, if you will. It says this. And after some days, and by the way, this is, this is a quite a long period, but it says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they are doing. So, Paul comes to Barnabas and he says, hey, you know what we need to do? We, we've gone to these churches. We, we've had these conversations with people. We know that churches were established as a result of the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. Um, but Paul comes to Barnabas and says, you know what? It'd probably be good for us if we did that exact same route again, and let's check in. Let's, see, let's make sure that the gospel is being proclaimed. Let's see if there's any way that we can encourage people. Whatever it takes, let's go again. Mission trip part two if you will. And here's where something interesting happened. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. So Barnabas agrees, but he adds in this little caveat here. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but... Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Don't miss this, okay? This very short verse right here is a very big part in the book of Acts. Because you need to remember the story of these two guys and, and why this disagreement, what happens, is so important. Paul and Barnabas have a very long history together. These guys are extremely close. I think best friends wouldn't even summarize. These guys have done life together in a very meaningful and special way. If you remember back in Acts 9, when, when Paul was on the Damascus Road, and he came into faith, and he, he is commissioned by Jesus to go out and spread the gospel, right? Many people thought, did not trust Paul even after he became a believer in Christ. And you can't blame him, right? The guy was in charge of arresting and persecuting Christians, and now all of a sudden, he is coming and saying, no, I'm actually one of you now. And yet many people were hesitant towards that. They did not trust Paul. They didn't want to be around Paul. Barnabas did. In fact, Barnabas is really the first person that willingly goes to Paul and says, hey, come with me. I see something in you. I'm trusting that God is going to use you. And so from Acts 9 until this point, Paul and Barnabas developed this very special close relationship. They spend a lot of time growing and learning the, the scriptures together, planning, 
talking through, and then as we read about a couple weeks ago and talked about, they, they went on a mission trip together. I don't know if any of you have ever been on a mission trip. I can remember every mission trip I've ever been on, and I can remember every person that's been on it, because it's a special, meaningful time, especially if it's a few of you like these two guys had, two guys that are working side by side, shoulder to shoulder for the gospel. Now we get here, and we learn that a disagreement arose between them. And I love that Luke, the author here, in fact, he says, he calls it a sharp disagreement. So much so that the the disagreement led to the two friends parting ways. I like this story. I don't like the story because of what happened, but I like this story because it's an encouragement and a reminder to me that life and relationships are difficult, and that even people like Paul and Barnabas struggle with it as well. I've said this, that conflict is inevitable. It's part of relationships. Paul and Barnabas enter into this sharp disagreement with each other, and it's over a particular person, and that is John Mark. Look again, he says, um, when Barnabas, he wanted to take with them John, called Mark, which, by the way, just to add a little extra element to the story, is that Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Okay? So that plays a little bit into this. Um, but look at verse 38 again. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. We won't go back, we won't look through all of it, but when you look at Acts 13, when, when this first missionary journey begins, um, you see what exactly happened with Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. What, what essentially what it was is that they, they begin their journey, they go to an island, and it, it's a fast-paced story with it. I mean, Paul and Barnabas just start, as soon as they land on the ground, they, they are preaching the gospel. They are Every person they find, every city that they go to, um, they just start going into it. We don't know exactly why Mark left, but it wasn't a smooth leave. Because in Acts 13, uh, if we can put up here on the slide here, what we say is that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This wasn't a, hey guys, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. I'll catch back up with you guys later. I've got something else i got to go do. No, the, the implication here and in chapter 15 is that Mark says, I'm out. See you guys. It's a desertion. He leaves them. Now, we don't know exactly why. There's a lot of, lot of theories as to why Mark abandoned the work here. Some thought maybe the, the work was too hard, perhaps he got sick. Um, we also see um, that really in this missionary journey that Paul really becomes the primary leader. Perhaps Mark really was hoping that um, Barnabas was going to remain, the, his, his cousin would remain that. We don't know. But what's interesting is that a lot of commentators believe, one of the most commonly held beliefs is that the reason Mark left is because Mark struggled with this idea of bringing the gospel message to the Gentiles. Mark was a very devout Jew. He believed in Jesus, and yet, as we've seen in this book, this is a very common struggle for a lot of the Jewish people that as as the gospel is being presented to the Gentiles, a lot of the Jewish people believe, okay, yes, we'll, we'll present you the gospel, but you have to become like us. 
You have to become like us in the Jewish, us in the Jewish faith. And so many commentators believe that the reason that Mark left was there's a particular story um, in Acts 13 where Paul and Barnabas, and they're reaching Gentiles, and it's a really wild story. I encourage you to go read, read it if you have some time. But this verse, by the way, it's interesting that Mark goes back to Jerusalem. He doesn't go back to Antioch, which is where he was sent from. He goes back to Jerusalem. And that's why a lot of commentators believe that the reason Mark abandoned the work of the gospel is he, he had a hard time understanding that the gospel is for all people. You know who else struggled with this was Peter. Peter, another person commissioned to spread the gospel, God also had to work on Peter's heart. So it's not unreasonable to think this, but whatever the reason, it creates this reputation around Mark. So much so that Paul says, we cannot take him with us again. I, I, I don't trust him. This is valuable work that we're doing. He's either in or he's out. He showed us that last time. He can't come. John Mark's reputation becomes stain. The name Mario Mendoza probably does not mean a lot to some of you. Just, by, just out of curiosity, does anybody in this room know that name? Okay, didn't think so. Maybe. If you do know that name, you might be, you're probably a big Major League Baseball fan, okay? Um, Mario Mendoza was a professional baseball player during the 70s and 80s. And he was actually a particularly good defensive player, but Mendoza was a terrible hitter. He was not a very good offensive player. Um, in fact, during uh, the, the average of his career, his batting average throughout his year was two, just over 200. Now, if you don't know anything about baseball, if you're like, I don't care about sports and I can't stand sport analogies, fair enough. Let me just say this. A 200 batting average is terrible. It's just awful, okay, especially at the major league level. If you hit 200, you really shouldn't be playing. And it became a joke around Mendoza because what, there was a term created that is still used by teams today called the Mendoza line. And the way the Mendoza line works is that if you are currently hitting at or below this 200 mark as a player, you most likely are not going to be on the team. And unfortunately for Mario Mendoza, this is kind of his reputation, is that among this culture, the Mendoza line will always refer back to a person and really this reputation that they had. Even though, like I said, there was other parts of his game that he was really good at, he's remembered for the Mendoza line. It's similar with John Mark here. John Mark is... is will always kind of have this unfortunate reputation, but we'll see here in a little bit uh, that God does something pretty amazing. But John Mark's story is actually not over, and we'll see that here in just a minute. But nonetheless, a decision is made, a disagreement happens between Paul and Barnabas, a sharp disagreement, both of them split. And here's a sad thing. We really don't see Paul and Barnabas ever coming back together. At least we don't know about it. It's a tough thing to consider. Two friends that close have such a disagreement that they split ways. But it does remind us, it brings us back to this realization that conflict is unavoidable. In fact, as fallen people, 
Conflict is unavoidable in all human relationships. However, as people who love and want to follow Jesus, we need to seek to resolve conflict in our lives in ways that reflect Jesus. As we see, even strong people of faith like these two struggle with it, they encounter it, and yet I believe that the the Bible is calling us as believers that when we encounter it, that the goal should always be restoration and redemption, that God is the God of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation, and that we should, in, in all conflicts that we encounter, do everything we can to pursue restoration. I understand that there's times that it doesn't happen, and, and restoration in relationships doesn't necessarily always mean that you come back to once what was, right? Uh, I do believe that you can have uh, conflict with somebody and, and go through it, and ultimately uh, forgiveness and redemption happens, but that doesn't mean that the nature of the relationship is the same. But nonetheless, it's what we should pursue. Um, but let me be the first to say Conflict is hard. Conflict is really hard, and we do not want to do it all the time. Even the people, like myself, I don't mind conflict. I, I really don't. I think conflict has a lot of, of benefits for it, but I, I'd be lying to you if I said that I enjoy it all the time and that I, that I don't ever struggle with it. Um, you know, one of the things as we talk a lot about conflict is that one of the, the most prominent things that happen, the, the reason why conflict is, isn't resolved a lot of times, where restoration isn't achieved, is because a lot of times in conflict, what is brought up is the past. We saw that here, right? And by the way, Paul's not wrong for saying this, right? He, he, his, his argument that, hey, we can't take him with us because he's abandoned us, he's not wrong in that. But you almost wonder if, is there an element of Paul here even that says, I'm holding on to the past. I'm, I'm, I can't move on from that. I certainly do that. One of the examples that I, I use a lot in counseling, I've talked with many of you in this room about, um, that I, I love, there's an example of what's called the box. And when, when we enter conflict, one of the things that happens is we create two separate boxes. One box is for the person that we're in conflict with, and the other box is for ourselves. And the way it works is that as we enter into conflict, the, the number one thing, the, the natural reaction of our sinful nature is to protect ourselves. And the way that we do that is we have to first put the, the person we're in conflict with into a box where we label them with things. They're inconsiderate. They're selfish. They don't understand. They, they are in the wrong here. And what happens is, is you put people in that box that ultimately becomes the lens to which that you see them moving forward. Instead of seeing them through the eyes of the Lord, what we begin to see people as is these things, that they're always selfish, that they're always misunderstanding, they don't get it, they're rude, all these things. Meanwhile, our own box is the box of self-justification whereby we defend ourselves. Well, the reason I acted that way, even if I know I did something, well, they made me do it. I'm the one that's in the right here. I'm the one that's actually selfless. That's not at all the scriptural approach to conflict. Conflict, according to what God is calling to, is not about who comes out on top. It's about how we enter into a relationship, how we bring about restoration to achieve something greater. We all know this, that 
one of the amazing things about conflict is as difficult as it is, how many of your relationships, how many events in your life have, have grown as a result of conflict? That goodness actually can come from conflict. That's one of the amazing things about this story, as we'll see. We learn later on in the story that Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark are eventually restored. Uh, we have to go later into the New Testament to realize this, but um, interestingly enough, uh, years down the road when Paul would be in prison, he would write a letter to his friend Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4, as he's, as, as he's under house arrest, he makes this unique request to Timothy. Uh, apparently, he would have been allowed visitors, but he, he makes some special requests to Timothy. He says, hey, when you come, he first says, I want you to bring a cloak that I left at Carpus, and also the books, and above all, the parchments, okay? But he goes on and he says, Luke alone is with me. This is pretty neat right here. And he says, get Mark. Bring him with you, for Mark is very useful to me in my ministry. What happened? I don't know. Something happened down the road where even Paul and Mark come together, where restoration ultimately happens to the point that Paul says, yeah, I know what Mark used to be. I know the thing that he did in the past, but now Mark is actually someone who benefits me who actually brings encouragement to Paul during his time. Restoration eventually won out. It's pretty neat. Um, history and tradition actually goes on and tells us that Mark's ministry did not end. Um, we'll talk about this here in just a sec. But when Paul leaves, he takes Silas, a new person that we'll talk about over the next couple of weeks. He takes Silas. They go do their own thing. Barnabas says, I'm going to take Mark, we're going to go do our own thing. Well, history tells us that um, eventually Mark would partner up with Peter. And it's pretty interesting because down the road, because of his time spent with Peter, it's through the, the stories and the account of Peter that ultimately leads Mark to write the Gospel of Mark. Mark also will go on later and Mark will start churches. And in fact, there's a tradition that says that Mark was actually martyred as a result of his faith, and get this, by being drugged to death by horses. The guy that abandoned the gospel, the guy that for a very strong argument could be made that, that said he, he didn't want to proclaim the gospel to all people, is now the guy dying for the faith. God restored him. God restored this conflict between these two people. And here's the, uh, really the best part of the story. If you open back up to Acts 15 here. And continuing on, it says, After the, there rose a sharp disagreement, Barnabas took Mark, and they sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. And having commended, being commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went out through Syria and Cilia and, uh, um, and strengthening the churches. Don't miss that. This is an amazing moment here because God does something really great. He now creates two teams that will go out. 
and they go about and they strengthen the churches. They plant more. They, they tell more people about the gospel. The work continues. And that's really the main point of what I'm trying to get across here today is that nothing stops God's plan. God can take any conflict, any barrier that we ever face that we create ourselves, and he can power through it. That's how amazing God is. Only God can take something bad and turn it into good. I wonder if, you know, another letter that Paul would eventually write down the road, I wonder if this was a thought that went through Paul's mind when he wrote one of the most famous verses in all of the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul knew this verse. He, he, he loved saying this because obviously Paul went through a lot of bad stuff, but I, I, I'd be willing to bet that even Paul can look back at even this story and say, that was tough. But God even used that moment for good. The book of Acts, as we'll see over the next uh, few weeks, now focuses on Paul and Silas. We don't, we don't really hear about Barnabas um, and Mark moving forward. But nonetheless, something amazing happens here. Conflict is not the end. Conflict does ultimately lead to restoration. More importantly, God uses it to continue reaching the people. That's my encouragement for you today. Let's pray as we close our time. Jesus, we want to thank you today that um, I know that there are probably people in this room who are in the midst of conflict, um, maybe with themselves, maybe with uh, someone else. We know it's a part of, of life, but God, we know that you are greater above all that. We know that if we trust in you, that you can lead us through that. And God, as we see even in this, in this story today, that um, you really had two things in mind. You, you ultimately would help bring about uh, the restoration and, and this relationship between these people, and yet you also used it to help bring about your gospel. Father, I pray for the relationships in our lives that uh, that would be us, that we would pursue restoration and reconciliation, and that through that, Father, that we would be an example of you to the world. God, I, 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 think it's, I think much of the world would look at us and say that uh, they understand that conflict is a part of life. But God, my prayer would be that as the world looks at us as examples of you, that they would look at us and say, why is it that conflict is different between them? Why is it that they pursue restoration and reconciliation above all else? And God, may we be able to simply point to, because that's who you are that you are the God that um, seeks it out so much, that, God, you, you pursue restoration, reconciliation so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for us. And to that we are thankful for today. We love you. Uh, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Thanks for these people here this morning. We love you and we thank you. Amen.